0: Cool. So, what do you want to talk about?
1: Uh, I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I feel you. Podcasts where two friends catch up and talk about whatever nerdy stuff comes to mind. Usually over hookah. Enjoy. I'm in a class this coming semester on early Christian thought, which will be good. And I'm in a class called uh, Philosophical Resources for Abrahamic Traditions. Wow. Which is Quite a class uh, <laughs> reading for that before February first that I am struggling through because I'm just so lazy and I don't want to do it.
1: Well, for the layperson, what's an what's what's classified as an Abrahamic tradition?
0: An Abrahamic tradition is any uh, religious tradition that would identify the character Abraham as an ancestor. It doesn't have to be a founding member of the tradition but but like an ancestor of the tradition so like essentially that includes the 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 sort of big three right that includes judaism christianity and islam there's all three of us sort of recognize abraham as a as a part of the tradition in some form or another
1: okay so it's not just child sacrifices
0: no 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 no. no um the so obviously, for Jews, Abraham is sort of seen as co- the originator of the covenant, right? Mm-hmm. So I am no listeners. If you're if you're listening and know more about Judaism than me, which is very likely, forgive me, <laughs> just forgive me. This is what I understand it to be. Judaism is sort of about covenants. It's about agreements and relational agreements between God and the Jewish people, kind of historically in their their kind of their history of their faith and their their tradition as both a people and a religion and abraham is sort of considered the foundational covenant between the the people of israel and god and so if you read the old testament you you have god uh, and, and abraham happens after adam and eve after noah after after a number of characters and abraham is not does not worship god has his own religion and believes in his own set of gods and is from his own land. And the story kind of goes that, that Yahweh, God, the, the, the God of, of um, who will become the God of the Israelites, um, essentially comes to Abraham and says, your descendants will be my people. And Abraham kind of agrees to it. And it's actually this really interesting story where Abraham goes, okay, the story kind of says Abraham sort of takes his family and rejects his own re- is is the religion of his fathers, essentially follows this presence you know into the wilderness, <laughs> uh, and and agrees to it and that covenant where God says you know I will be your God and you will be my people and I will make you a, a prosperous people and that is the Abrahamic covenant and sort of begins the the covenantal history of the Jewish people and God. And Christians cite that because St. Paul identifies Abraham as as a sort of a foundational, for, for two reasons. One, because St. Paul wants to claim the Jewish faith as and the Christian faith as being inextricably linked, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, in fact, the God of Jesus Christ, like it's the same thing. We also claim Abraham, but Paul also does some really interesting work in his, in his writings where he talks about Abraham as a sort of forerunner of faith. And so he, he turns to the character of Abraham in a big way. So Christians identify themselves as an Abrahamic tradition because of Abraham. And then uh, Muslims do, because in, in their tradition, Abraham is seen as a prophet is sort of the ethnic covenantal identity of Muslims. Is connected to Abra- Abraham's first son, Ishmael,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so in in the story, um, actually this is a this was a big hit among the old ladies at Sunday school. They thought this was <laughs> great. They they were like, "Wow, this is so so interesting." I was like, "Yeah, it's very dramatic." In in the story, you have Ab- God promises Abraham many descendants, but Abraham is really old, and his wife Sarah is also really old, and so Abraham's like, "I'm really not sure how this is going to happen." you know, I'm starting to get scared. And Sarah says, I have an idea. Why don't you sleep with my maid?
1: Don't you wish hey. your wife was that accepting? <laughs> I do not, actually.
0: That would be a major trap. And I'd be like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'll hide over here instead. Why don't you sleep with my maid? That way we'll, we we can make a, we make a baby. And the maid's name is Hagar. And Hagar is, uh, there's some really cool work in the kind of black feminist tradition of of really digging into the character of Hagar, because Hagar made is a sort of a generous term for what there's is what Hagar really is. You know? <laughs> Hagar, Hagar is a slave, you know, and, and 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 is in fact the slave of the master's wife, not Abraham. And so there's some extra layers of white feminist bullshit. That, so that, so you know. so Abraham was not the the master. Abraham was, I suppose, the the head of the household. But, but the, the text implies that, that that Sarah owns Hagar. Oh, and okay. So, and so it's, it's, it's Sarah's slave. Sure, Abraham is the head of the household, but it's not like Abraham bought Hagar exclusively to bed her. And so- That's just uh, what
1: you got your, you got, what was that, fifth anniversary for your wife, a new Yeah, slave? pretty
0: sure, pretty Something sure. Like that. And, then, and so from Hagar, uh, Abraham has Ishmael, and Ishmael is Abraham's oldest. It's his oldest son. It's not Pharaoh's son, but who cares? It's Abraham's son. And the covenant, you know, as you read the text, the covenant says that, that God will make Abraham's descendants his people. Muslims identify Ishmael as sort of their ethnic ancestor, right? Yeah. And so, and so in the story that we have in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah reject Ishmael and Hagar and then... Sarah has Isaac and Isaac is sort of named as Abraham's primary descendant. And so when the, when Jewish folks, well, it's really just in the old Testament, one of God's proper names in the old Testament is the God of Abraham and Isaac, not Ishmael. But Muslims want to say, yeah, that's, that's what we call Jewish propaganda. (laughs) 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 Like Muslims want to say, no, I mean, like, we're from the line of Ishmael. Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham. The covenant says that God is the God of Abraham's ascendants. God is our God. So do they have like
1: lineologies and family trees to assert this? Or do they just like not the underdog? Are they no. adopting <laughs> Greek <and> culture early? <laughs>
0: I, don't, I don't think that's how it is. I, I'm, not, I'm not crazy familiar with the Quran um and some of the other and some of the other stuff around it i i imagine that they have probably as legit genealogies as the jewish people (laughs) (laughs) all
1: that to say not very legit then
0: (laughs) yeah all that to say it's it's fuzzy you know but uh but but i will say that theologically you know, it's kind of hard to argue with if we're if we're taken from the same myth, right? Like if, if right. we're saying, Okay, you know, here we have this character Ishmael, sort of functions in this really strange way in the old in the old testament. You know, Ishmael just kind of he's he's kind of this black sheep kid that technically within the rules that God establishes is one of God's people, be- you know, children, right? Is 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 in the line of Abraham and yada yada yada. But the Jewish people kind of you know, in their in their mythology, they go no, no Ishmael. You know, Isaac, Isaac's our guy. But I think that the Muslims have an in, make, make a very interesting point with that, where they're like, well, sure, that's what the Jewish people think, but you know, God can do what God wants. And I'm like, yeah, probably. So that's what an that's what Abrahamic traditions are. And so, in this class, we're reading uh, different philosophers from the ancient Greeks up to. I think we're just going to go to the medieval period in this class and the way in which they speak to and are used by um, Jewish, Christian and Muslim thinkers, because uh, the medieval Muslim philosophical tradition is actually pretty dense. Like, I don't know it well, but Islam has a has a very well respected among like religious philosophy like medieval philosophical tradition. They preserve a ton of the writings of like Aristotle and like translate them into air, into, into their language. And they do a lot of stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. so we're going to read some of that. (laughs) Sounds fun. (laughs) I mean, it's going to be interesting. I, I don't, I don't know how that's going to go. And then, and then the third class I'm taking is, is a class called religion and black thought, which I'm very excited for. That's going to be a different contemporary and modern um, black philosophers and social theorists and theologians and their writings on religion and all that good stuff. And I'm very excited for that. I think that's going to be cool.
1: Cool. This all starts February 1st. February 1st. Are you going to actually be in person?
0: No, no, not for spring, not for spring. The UVA has folks that gives folks the option of doing that. None of my grad none of the graduate schools that I know of is meeting in person. And I, I imagine that there are probably some undergraduate departments and classes that are meeting in person. There were some in the fall that did that. I'm one that I'm like, <clears throat> hey man, of course I want to meet in person. I want to go to school with people, you know, I don't I don't just want to do this from home. And we'll get to that. That'll probably be how ho- hopefully fall will, will be that way, but why why uh shove college people together and say, "Okay, go to class now" when they're also, you know, fucking and doing drugs <laughs> together and like (laughs) that's probably not a good idea well they're probably doing that anyway (laughs) that's my thing like like it's probably not a great plan in the middle of a pandemic to you know have college kids that are already not obeying social distancing are they
1: going to set you guys up with vaccines someday any word on that uh
0: so apparently uh virginia is number one in worst vaccine rollout Uh, good to be be recognized as
1: something
0: (laughs) number one number one (laughs) and so i don't know when that's gonna i don't know how that's gonna go i i imagine that uva is gonna take care of that for for the students i i see no reason why why that's not to me that's like an easy that's easy here's there's fifteen thousand people who live in within your your campus who live you know Two hundred feet away from the hospital,
1: let's (laughs) just
0: let's just vaccinate them, and then, right, and and then that's great. Then, then we fifteen thousand people that live in Charlottesville are vaccinated, you know. But whatever, we'll see what happens. We
1: were we were offered to receive the vaccine. We're we're in the one A category, which means we're first responders and able to be prioritized first for receiving the vaccine, and then whenever the word came down last week that the contract wasn't going to be renewed. Mm-hmm. They were like, well, you can still get it. You just have to drive to Reading now. <laughs> Which is about a three-hour drive.
0: Yeah, it's a long fucking drive.
1: I was like, yeah, I'd probably just wear a mask a little more
0: until it comes a little
1: closer to home. There's, uh, there's, There's so much going on. That uh, is, is a question mark at this point for mm. me, so I'm not sure which direction you want to head. But uh, I, I, I suppose I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about what's going on now with everybody's sort of perception of of what uh, my industry is going mm. through. Um, for the listeners, I, I work in one of these ubiquitous private prisons that has been uh recently ordered to be closed by the president so therefore our federal contract will not be being renewed and now i am going so we're gonna have to start like a a kickstarter or something (laughs) 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 for this now uh so i'm weighing different options on things but um as of march 31st i don't have my career anymore that i've been doing for the last 15 years the way that it's set up all the training that i have and all the experience that i have with the federal government all that can be utilized only in a bureau of prison setting Hmm. and uh in order to work for the bureau of prisons you have to be under the age of 38 when you start and i'm 42 So, despite the fact that I majorly qualify for all this other stuff, I'm simply ineligible because of my age to transfer into a different institution. So, I've been asked if I wanted to be involved in the teaching aspect because I do have quite extensive experience and knowledge in in that. I've got hostage negotiation training got uh crisis support training i've got disciplinary hearing officer training that's like the the judge within the prison Mm
0: -hmm. not
1: to mention the years of experience working on the inside of the fence and uh they said it would be i would be an asset to them at the national training center i considered that but the national training center for the bureau of prisons is in denver colorado and i'm not sure that i want to move there because my wife has a pretty good gig here to do that would remove her from her short thing. She's set up with a retirement plan and a pension and the whole nine. So for me to be able to pursue that, which I've been doing for the majority of my adult life um, I have to, it, it, that comes at the cost of, of her, of her career,
0: yeah. Yeah. you know?
1: And I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. So um, I've got to find something different. And that's what's kind of frightening because, you know, all the things that I I know and all the things that I'm qualified for, I'm not eligible for due to my age. (laughs) So so and and then starting over again at the advanced age (laughs) that I am (laughs) is a difficult prospect to. And in the area you're familiar with, the area that I live, there's not a whole lot of uh, options for um, strong-paying jobs. So yeah. I either have to invent something mm. that everybody needs but nobody knows that they need, like you know, like the bottle cap, right, or or <laughs> or brake lights or yep. something, <laughs> something like everybody uses but nobody need, nobody knows they need until they need it. I have to devise something like that or become a YouTube star.
0: That's mm, um, possibility.
1: Not holding my breath on that, being as I, I can barely operate the Zoom. <laughs> uh, or, you know, I don't know, we'll figure something out. But uh, the perception right now with the private prison industry, I, I wanna set something straight to the <laughs> listeners. There are all sorts of private prisons And uh, they do different things, different contracts for different things. Some of them are federal contracts, some of them are state contracts, some of them are county contracts. Some of them involve housing criminals, some of them involve housing, um, detaining illegal immigrants, some of them involve reentry programs and job training programs, things like that. So there's a variety of them. They Mm -hmm. are all, they're all bad. (laughs) <laughs> what I mean by that is they are all uh profit motive. There's always a profit motive in the private sector and there's that's an inescapable cloud that I've had over me for a long time because I know like in the core of me that uh detaining people with the with the uh, angle of profit is is uh less than favorable morally. <laughs> Just to put it bluntly, but I hear a lot of the rhetoric that's going on surrounding private prisons and a lot of the information that's being spread around is inaccurate, they, they, every, everything is lumped together. For example, the, the prison that I worked at had a federal contract with the Bureau of Prisons. So these are inmates that have been convicted of crimes in the United States and are serving out their federal sentences. Um, Primarily the reason that they were housed in our facility was the majority of the inmates that we had were criminal aliens, meaning that they were not citizens of the United States. The reason that they were housed in our facility was because um, certain things need to be done by all federal inmates whenever they're incarcerated regarding programming if you wanna get your full amount of good conduct time as a incarcerated citizen of the United States, you must participate in educational programming or mm. drug programming or job programming, vocational programming. So the way it works is every, for every year that you get sentenced, you're able to earn up to 54 days every year in what's called good conduct time, right? So as long as you don't get in trouble and you're participating in your programs and all that stuff, you get 54 days for every year of your sentence off. So if you Mm. get sentenced to 10 years for running drugs, for example, then you're not gonna actually do 10 years in prison, right? You're gonna do 10 years minus 540 days, 54 days a year, blah, 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 blah. So it works out to about 86% of your sentence, okay? So, you can earn these 54 days a year only if you're participating in the required programming and you're not getting in trouble for it right you're not getting written up for you know disobeying orders or fighting with other people or whatever so it's called good conduct time in lieu of good conduct right true and this is the same for every single person that goes into the bureau of prison system right they're all under the same thing now Whenever you are a criminal alien, the government has deemed it a waste of its money to provide the same sort of programming, the same sort of education, the same sort of vocational programming to people that are going to be cast out of the country at the end of their sentence, right? Mm. So individuals that are not citizens of the country have to be... They, they don't have to do the same sorts of things as you or I would as a citizen of the country to earn their good time. They're they're granted 54 days a year. OK, hmm. whereas you or I would have to participate in those programs in order to earn that 54 days a year. So if I chose not to go to school, for example, I might only be able to earn 42 days a year instead of 54 days a year. If you're not a citizen of the country, they just give you the 54 days. Hmm. Okay. Now, an individual in the private prison industry, an executive would look at that and go, well, if those guys don't need to have that education, then we don't need to have that education department. We don't need to hire those teachers to teach those classes. So we will take those inmates and house them in our facility for a lower price than it would cost for them to be housed at a bureau of prisons facility that has all these programs because they're simply not needed Sure. because they're not they're not a requirement for those individuals anyway so that's where the private prison in the in the in the sense of the federal bureau of prison system that's how they make their money we don't mm-hmm. offer the same amount of programs to the inmate population because for the most part they're all getting deported right now Hmm. if they have their immigration hearing and it's determined that they're not going to be deported for whatever reason their offense isn't uh deportable or they had they can show that they have citizen's tips through a a parent or something like that then we remove their status their detainer right and then we would transfer them to a a regular bop facility that did have those programs available to it so a lot Hmm. of uh A lot of Cuban immigrants, right? A lot of guys that are from Cuba, they're not citizens of the United States, but we don't deport to Cuba. We haven't deported anybody to Cuba since 1948. You know, the United States and Cuba don't get along very well or or hadn't historically. So, Cuban inmates are not going to be deported. So, once we determine their nationality and we determine they're going to be allowed to stay in the United States, we transfer them from the private facility back into the regular facility, right?
0: my daughter has poop all over the toilet well that's
1: in the right area anyway no.
0: but no so i assume you need me to clean the toilet <laughs> that's why you're in here okay this is okay. please well, remember where like you're at
1: good time for a break right we'll, we'll insert commercial here
0: insert commercial My wife is overdramatic. It was not that much poop. It was fine. It was fine.
1: (laughs) I was going to say that was pretty quick. So
0: Yeah, I was like, come on, this is fine. I've been too devastated. No. No.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so what I wanted to explain was like, okay, primarily how the private prison industry makes their money is by not using the full programming suite that would be used in a regular prison for a, an inmate that's a citizen of the United States. There's not the same political will or financial will to educate an individual who's going to be removed from the country. And there's not the, the impetus for the reentry programs that there would be for, say, you or I. Mm-hmm. Right. Once our sentences are up, we need to come back in and be productive members of society. Once a person from the Dominican Republic's sentence is up, they're going back to the Dominican Republic. And frankly, we don't care about the Dominican Republic, right? Sure. That's the harsh reality of, the, of, of how this, this particular prison squares their balance sheet, right? And, and it's not the, that's not the prison's fault per se, that's just the way the, the policy, the policies are written that way, regardless of where the inmates housed, it's just cheaper to house them altogether in a prison that doesn't have to pay those expenses for staffing and for materials. What does that mean for your prison populations? Well, um, that means that our prison population is almost all immigrants and they are ethnically placed in the same area, right? So we have a large amount of members of the Mexican community. We have a large amount of the Mexican or the uh, Dominican Republic community we have large groupings of these of these people that in a regular prison would be dispersed in a much more diffuse um, environment with different races and different um, backgrounds and and gang affiliations right Mm -hmm. in our prison we have a lot of gangs because they're all people from the same ethnic backgrounds and they're all international like drug runners, like there's nobody there for having like you know an ounce of weed in their backpack like huh. they're they're there for having like pounds or kilograms or tons of weed <laughs> right or, yeah. or whatever whatever substance it is right so one of the criticisms that i keep hearing is oh all these small-time drug offenders that are being housed in prison you know the private prisons are, are lobbying to have to have uh, these drug laws enforced and that increases the prison population. Now that might be true. That might be true in some of these other facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's absolutely the case. And I'm not sitting here advocating the private prison industry. Like I said before, I think anything with a profit motive is kind of amoral to begin with. But in the setting I was in, that was not the case. Right. So all these people. When the contract disappears, they don't get released to the street early. They don't get to go home because, you know, they were there for a minor drug offense. Every single person that we have is going to another prison. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. They're going to Mm -hmm. a regular Bureau of Prisons facility to finish their sentence because that's what they got sentenced for. They broke a law. The law says you got to do this much time for this offense. And that's what they're doing, you know? Right. So myth number one is that all the inmates in private prisons are there because of corruption and nefarious drug laws. The drug laws do exist, but those drug laws were put in place by our government. And if we want to change those, then we need to change those through Congress. Right. Right. That's 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 what you've got to do. So that's number one. Number two. We hear all the time that private prisons are less safe. Um, mm-hmm. This hasn't been my experience because I've been in regular prisons. I've worked, coordinated with lots of different staff members from different facilities, trained with them, trained some of them actually, mm-hmm. you know. There is no real difference in, in, in uh, safety measures. It's, it's just as bad in a, in a BOP proper facility as it is in like a facility like ours. But um, what you don't have in those facilities is as focused a group of individuals,
0: right? Mm-hmm. They don't
1: have 800 members of the PISA gang. Right, right. <laughs> right? There might mm-hmm. be 40 of them in a population of 1,500 people in a, in a regular prison, and there's 40 PISAs. We have 1,800 inmates, and 800 of them are PISAs. <laughs> right mm-hmm. so that makes management of that population a little bit more dicey because you never have you like you never have a fight between one guy and another guy you know right, if right. one guy and another guy Games. get into a fight it's it's you get 40 on 40 you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's less a result of the private prisons being inherently less safe as it is uh, a function of the types of people that you're putting into the same location. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, We also don't have any like small time offenders. Right. Like everybody that I had from Europe was either like millions of dollars of fraud or organized crime. uh, A lot of organized crime guys, you know, so like these guys had money. They had resources outside. A lot of the guys from Mexico and a lot of the guys from the Central American countries were all members of the cartels, you know. We had guys from Colombia that were making $6 million a month.
0: Sure,
1: You know, these guys aren't, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to, uh, to threaten them, if you right. will, with a fine, <laughs> <Right, laughs> whatever right. they can pay it with their eyes closed. Right. They have, they mm. have, they have money, they have resources and they have connections. Right. So when people say, well, the private prisons are less safe, well, they're only less safe because the, we, we only get a certain kind of inmate and it mm-hmm. happens to be a kind of inmate that doesn't have the ability to control another facility because the numbers aren't there. But when you stick them all in one, mm-hmm. well, now you've got a, you know, a management issue. But we, but even that notwithstanding, we, we don't have very many incidents of violence or anything um, in, in any, any more than any more than any other facility. Is what I would say. So like, those are the two things that I keep hearing that, that kind of get me because it's like, I understand the, the, uh, the moral question of, of of holding people with a for-profit motive. Like I get it. I I've got it since day one. I've always kind of had that in the back of my head. Like, ah, man, it just, it doesn't feel right. You know? Right. But the other things that get mentioned, they don't apply. Now I'm not saying they don't apply to any private prison, but they didn't apply to, to this one. Right. Because of the way the contract was structured and who it was through. We didn't have kids in cages. We didn't have anybody separated from their families as far as like, you know, trying to get asylum or anything. We just didn't have those guys, those places exist, but it wasn't this one. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, we were able to provide a level of, of care that I felt we did a lot of good for these guys while we were there, you know? And, uh, I, I that's how I always squared it in my head, you know, like I'm going to work, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it correctly. I'm going to do it. Right. I'm going to be fair. I'm going to be just, and I'm going to be firm, fair and consistent. Right. That's what, that's what we're always thrilled to do. And we did that. And, um, when I hear people saying that it was, it's all, oh, it's this, or it's, oh, it's that it really illustrates to me how people tend to oversimplify things or they, they, and, and we all do it. We all do it to degree. Sure. Yeah,
0: But me too.
1: Mm-hmm. you know, it just reminds me that there's, you know, there's nuance. I try to be less judgmental in my life because when I hear somebody talking about something that I don't understand, I've never walked in their shoes. So like I got to be a little bit more cautious about passing judgment, mm. you know, um, profit motives are never good in interest of, of, public safety right Mm. but profit motives aren't good in the interest of public health either and nobody gets nobody gets vilified for being a nurse and working for a for-profit hospital you know you don't say well that person's got that person's got you know that person should be ashamed for working i i I do hear that i hear you you should be ashamed for working in a private prison well you know uh, should a teacher feel ashamed for working at a charter school sure you know, should a nurse feel ashamed for working at a a for-profit hospital? Like, it's the same, it's the same thing. Like, none of those things should cost money, (laughs) right? Right. You know, but, you know, that's just the way it is. And you still need good people working in those areas Mm -hmm. or, you know, the systems fall apart, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's just kind of what I wanted to get that off my chest. Uh, I'm in no way defending the private industry, private prison Mm -hmm. industry. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying before you judge somebody that works there, stop for a second and understand like what's going on. Now, they're talking about bringing in a different contract. Um, If they get a state contract or if they get uh, immigration only contract, I won't work there because I won't I won't be able to like because if they get an immigration contract, we could have kids in cages. You know, I, I, I couldn't sleep
0: doing that. You know, so sure. No, I understand that. I understand.
1: And the and the thing is, with the with the jobs in this area, they paid pretty well. You know, the mm-hmm. the facility paid pretty well, and it kept a lot of people that would otherwise be in a poverty stricken area. It really invigorated the whole area because we were able to have good jobs, and that's mm-hmm. really the thing that's the shame about it. Yeah, you know. People were like, "Well, at least yeah, but at least there's not that many people, not as many people in prison." No, those guys are all still in prison. They're just not here anymore, and now those jobs are gone. Right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now, the main reason that that the prison got shut down is because during the COVID crisis, the federal government has started releasing a lot of nonviolent drug offenders and a lot of older individuals that have health problems and things. And they've been releasing them on a compassionate basis in greater numbers than have ever been seen before. And Mm. what's happened is the regular BOP facilities that have been releasing American citizens now have open beds. Right. And all those individuals that work in those facilities have unions. And those unions aren't going to allow BOP facilities to be shut down in lieu of a contract facility somewhere else. Right. So because the space has been created, those facilities are being filled up to the gills with guys that were originally housed in our facility and other facilities like ours. There was nine of the there was nine facilities like our facility that have held that BOP contract. We housed a little over 14000 people in -hmm. those nine facilities. And uh, they've all been. They've all, They've been, all shut been shut down them. and they did it like that and that's what kind of that's the kind of shock to the system we always knew that like that was a possibility but we always thought that it would be like okay next year you guys are not going to have a contract not like next month right. <laughs> you know? right so like oh by the way you're done next week and it's like hmm okay so yeah so and right now and we i'm kind of in limbo because i like i said i have a lot of training and a lot of experience but i don't really want to move because my wife is pretty good here she's pretty well set up here so i'm not sure what's going to happen but i also look at it as kind of an opportunity in Mm -hmm. a way um because to be frank um had those contracts been renewed and kept going i would have died there man and i didn't particularly particularly love it i mean i liked I liked working with the inmates that I worked with. I liked I liked the job day to day. I did not like the administration. I never right. did, right? And everybody can complain about their job and especially their administrations. Hmm. I mean, that's but that's part of having a job. As far as right. like the work that I had to do on a daily basis, I didn't mind it, but I'm I wasn't doing what I like. I didn't grow up going, oh, I want to work in a, a prison, you know. Mm-hmm. So now I'm kind of looking at it like it's an opportunity to kind of try to find a job I want instead of a job I need. Yeah, absolutely. And if there's something around here that I can do, I'll do it when I have to, not when I want, not like I, I have some time to, to figure things out. I have some savings. Mm-hmm. Um, the unemployment situation is, is decent right now, given the pandemic and all the people that are out there in, in need and the government's stepping up and, paying the benefits out so that's going to be helpful. I'm Good. not one of those guys that wants to like sit at home on my butt and collect right. money and not work. That's not my angle. But mm. the reality is I was making $65,000 a year and mm. if I got to get a job around here for 30,000 a year, it wouldn't pay me as much as sitting at home on my butt collecting the unemployment. Right. Right?
0: Yeah. So it
1: would it would be kind of it would not it would not be very smart to go get a job and make less money than I would on unemployment. I'll just wait for my unemployment to run out before I go get a job that I have to have. So that gives me time to find a job that I want.
0: Yeah. I think that's good. You know, I think that's right.
1: So fingers crossed. I'm not sure what that'll be yet. Yeah. So there's my situation. That's my, that's my week.
0: That's huge, man. <laughs> that's huge. I, I know I've been thinking about you a lot since you said that. Since you you told me that that was happening. Yeah, I mean, I can't even. I really can't imagine, you know, that that kind of shock or that kind of stress. You know, that's something that would really hit me real real hard because I stress out a lot about money and a lot about. I like going to bed at night knowing exactly what it's going to be like tomorrow, <laughs> the next day, and so like right. I, that would really that would really drive me nuts. Um, and I, t- and I completely respect and, and feel your, uh, concern with, you know, your wife and wanting to make sure that your, your wife's gig is good and continues to be good. You know, uh, my wife r- routinely is more successful than I am. <laughs> and, and I routinely take her away from things where she is successful, <laughs> <laughs> um not so much this time around this this was the new one we we've <laughs> but but prior to all of that like you know she got to go on tour and make more money than i've ever made and you know got to be technical directors and all the stuff that she got to do and then she had to follow my ass around yeah. and so i totally understand i understand that <laughs> um and i appreciate you know, my kind of, my, the big response I have to all of that is I really appreciate your uh, ability to um, point out just how complicated all of this really is. At pe- this is a people thing in general. And you said this too, that um, people, people really like to simplify things and like to make it into a kind of uh, very black and white, very good versus evil kind of a thing. And I think that there are some things in life that are like that. Like, I don't think there's any nuance to putting kids in cages, you know, like, no. There, like there's, there's no nuance not. there. There's don't not. do that. You know, that's totally wrong. Right. Um, there, I think that you're pointing out very well that, that there is nuance to this situation, like pri- yeah. private prisons, as you said, uh, Private companies profiting off of human bodies is bad. That that that's There's not no good. argument
1: to that. <laughs> yeah, that that's not a good
0: thing. Um, but but as we get into the kind of day to day nitty gritty of communities uh, thriving economically because of job opportunities and mm-hmm. families needing to work and 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 the shutting down of one thing doesn't actually solve any problems. It, it, right. it actually just continues to create problems.
1: And, that, and that's really, uh, that's really the point that I want people to understand about this situation. If this was about making a community thrive or p- having good paying jobs at the expense of kids in cages, obviously that wouldn't be worth it. And that's sure. not what I'm suggesting, you sure. know, what I'm saying is, the individuals that are that were at this facility aren't going anywhere. And trust me, I read their jackets. They're not good guys. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people out there that want to sympathize and say, "Well, well, we shouldn't have anybody in prison." Well, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not you know, true. That's not true. <laughs> you know, um, if they were stealing from you, or God forbid, doing something worse to you or your children, you may feel differently the the need for for law enforcement and incarceration is there. You know, those people aren't there because they're innocent victims that were just, you know, picked up off a boat for trying to come to the United States to make a better life for themselves. You know, they were they were taking advantage of people and in some cases much, much worse. You know, and I've told you I'm not gonna get into it on the podcast, but I've told you some privately some stories of some of the guys that I've had and they're not like, they're not people that you want to be your neighbors.
0: (laughs) No, I understand.
1: So so like, it's not like, you know, the the community was profiting off of um, innocent victims that were innocent victims of circumstance. Like these people did something wrong and we were, the, the, the community was profiting from the what, what the court said needed to be done to rectify that situation right so it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been any different if, if if the bureau of prisons owned that facility and not the private company that i worked for nobody would have said beans there wouldn't be any normal uh any any uh moral conundrum about it at all sure nobody would have felt bad for those guys at all mm-hmm. um but because it's a private prison they all assume that that these guys are, are somehow victims, and and these guys aren't. There are there are victims of private prisons, absolutely, just not these ones, <laughs> you know, not right. this contract, not how that, not how that's works, you know.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And uh, you know, this reminds me a lot, Matt, of conversations I've had in the past with other folks who who think, you know, like us and and like me. I'm I'm a little farther on the left than you are, but. Ultimately, not by a huge amount. Not really. That we can agree. That we can agree that kids in cages is universally bad is already good. Not not every one <laughs> of the people that we that live in this country <laughs> can agree on that. I, I think this really gets at the you know all of the reform that that might might be needed. That might be important and good. You know, like you brought up about uh, for-profit hospitals, and so like for-profit mm-hmm. healthcare, I think fits into this conversation too it is bad that's yeah. bad that's not a good thing but to dismantle it without a a way of supporting the people that rely on that system is um to do more violence anyway that doesn't mean right. that it doesn't mean that we don't talk about reform and don't enact reform what it means is that it re- reform can't take the the form of like, just like a spray and pray, a, a just, right. duke it, you know, like it,
1: it, it can't up. be, it can't be overnight and it can't be sloppy. It needs to be, it needs to be surgical. <laughs> right. It yeah, needs to be, yeah. needs to be well thought out. It needs to be well planned. It needs to be well funded. And those of us that aren't involved in the day-to-day operations have to be able to accept that as a burden of our social responsibility.
0: Sure. And so I think,
1: that's,
0: right. I think so. that's exactly right. I really do. I really do. Um, I think people on the left and, and who knows what I mean by that at this point. I think people who on the Internet who are on the left that talk a lot um, often believe this kind of lie that policy that that policies like what many of us advocate for, including me, uh, won't hurt anybody. When of right. course they will, of course they'll hurt people, you know, like, like that, that's, that still might be worth it. You know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, you know, it's that, 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 that sort of means then that it's a non-starter. No, I, so like you take something like uh, big fossil fuel industries and mm-hmm. the way in which these things are harming the planet, you know, it might be worth just shutting it all down. Yeah. yeah. It might be worth that. And maybe we sure. should just do that. But we shouldn't be led to believe that somehow people won't get hurt by that. Like, well, of right. course, things will be hurt by that. Like, like, that's true. But we can't, you know, but we have to acknowledge that. And we have to work through that. And we have to plan for that. But we shouldn't be lulled into thinking that, like, it's it's a, it's a simple matter of we, we stop doing this and then everything is fine. When, no, it's not that everything is fine. It's, it's a whole no, host when- of extra things.
1: And whenever people were led to believe that that's what's going to happen like it's going to be stopped like that without any kind of transition period or anything that's how you get people rushing your capital Hmm. right Mm -hmm. because because the fear of losing a, a a lifestyle or the fear of losing a livelihood pervades any of that other good that can be done like so the fossil fuel industry is a perfect example of this right like you can't just stop using fossil fuel. Well, you could just stop using fossil fuels, but you've got a lot of people that are involved in that industry that aren't the yellow teeth, cigar smoking, big business executives, right? Right? That can that can afford a hit to their paycheck. You know, you've got the guys that work in the mines, the guys that drive the trucks, the guys that do all the the labor involved in preparing it, refining it, producing it, distributing it. There's an entire economy built around that. And there's a lot of people that are involved in that. And I've heard um, the argument, well, you know, there's only 54,000 jobs in West Virginia that are going to get lost with the kill. Co- That's 54,000 people, 54,000 families, you know?
0: Yeah. And, yeah.
1: you know, I'm not for burning coal as more, more than anybody else, especially when there's alternatives out there that can do it better and cleaner. But I'm worried about those 54,000 people. You know, what are you going <laughs> to do with them? what are you going to do for their families how are we going to how are we going to reintegrate them and get and i'm not talking about going down to the the 7-eleven or the sheets and getting a you know a minimum wage job these are these are these are jobs that sustain families right? right we need to be able to figure out how to replace that and and retrain people and not just leave them out in the, in the dark
0: right right and i think you're exactly right If I may make it theological for just a second, like what, what you're describing and what and and the kind of naughtiness of what we're getting into is, is I think, a really good example of, of what you know, kind of Christian thinkers uh, try to get at when we talk about just how pervasive like sin is, right? Mm-hmm. Sin, I think, for a lot of church people, I know this because this is how my church people thought about it even some really smart ones <laughs> that sounds so it <laughs> sounds so fucking rude even even the <laughs> even the intelligent ones you know <laughs> um the, the, the ones that i wouldn't expect to think this way you know for, for them i think that i think the church people are sort of trained to sort of view sin as these really um concrete this is a sin this is not a sin this the is seven,
1: the, the seven deadlies right the ones the that seven you can deadlies point at and you know, say you know, that ten- that's wrong
0: That's wrong. The 10 commandments. These are, these are things that I'm not, I'm not here to say aren't bad uh, or, or aren't don't have potential to be bad or, or whatever. But what I, when Christian theologians starting with at least St. Paul talk about sin, they, they really are describing an entire kind of webbing of life and an entire thing that people are sort of trapped in. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, Paul talks about the power of sin, not, not meaning, you know, you have committed a sin, but, but that all, for some reason, all people dwell within sin, are dead in sin, have, have find themselves trapped, find themselves enslaved to sin. As we dive into exactly what we're talking about today, we discover that that is uh, actually quite true, that, if you take something like the fossil fuel industry or, or, or private prisons or, or whatever, you find that this system of sin, this bad thing profiting off of human lives, bad sin, um, has within it a whole webbing of extra things that even when we try to stop doing it, we find ourselves sinning against other people. Right. And so and so it, it, it gets it. We're even more. Um, it's even more naughty. It's even more. It's even more um, mm. bound together when 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 St. Paul says, yeah, man, we are we are dead in sin. We are trapped in sin. It's not a matter of, well, we just have to stop, you know, <laughs> right. like, no, no, like that, that doesn't happen. It might happen if there was such a thing as a totally autonomous human being outside of society. If that was true, then maybe. But that's not true. We're we're human beings together. Oh, so we'll we talk about
1: escape. sovereign citizens next time. But, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Fair> <laughs> but um,
1: yeah, but I mean, even in even in those quote unquote, you know, sinful practices, you know, good things happen you know, in a, in a for-profit hospital, lives are saved, you know, in a, in a for-profit prison, people are reformed, you know, there, there, there are good things that happen even within those structures. And, uh, um, I think the thing that bothers me the most about people criticizing them is the almost glee that they take Mm. and sort of pointing out something that's other or something that they deem to be bad or unfit and the in the glee that they get in the in the personality or the in the personal boost that they get by putting the other person down or putting them lowering them down on that other peg well that's immoral but i'm not immoral you're immoral you know that sort of that sort of haughtiness um right without looking at it's the it's the casting of the first stone right
0: <laughs> and
1: people yeah. are very willing to cast stones anymore especially when there's no accountability for it on the internet
0: well that's true <laughs> you, you bring up a good you bring up a good point Matt because there's a there's there's a sense among some different folks uh, on the right and the left and anywhere in between that that somehow you're kind of in the right when you are pointing out uh, what is wrong in other people, or in other systems, or in other things, and I think that's a really mm-hmm. interesting line, because on one hand you have really important teachings in G- of Jesus, where he talks about "Judge not, yet lest you be judged," and you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that that stuff about the taking the splinter out of your brother's eye when you still have a plank in your own, and, right? <laughs> you know, all that all that good stuff. You got that. And then um, you've got this other kind of dimension in both the Gospels and, and throughout the Bible and in the history of the church of sort of righteous indignation against uh, evil and against uh, really bad shit that, that people do. What, what I think, I, and I don't, but I don't think they contradict each other because I think what's really uh, at play is sort of two, a two pronged thing on one hand, Jesus is talking about, at least to me, Jesus's teachings on on judging, are are really talking about relationships with other people. Uh, that there is a sense in which that well, once you engage with other people, you discover that, I mean, we are just as fucked up, like like we're <laughs> we're just as we're just as trapped, you know. We 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 have we have such similar issues happening with each other. Um, and then on the other hand. You have this kind of thread of righteous indignation against really powerful and things and powerful people and, and and people people and institutions and powers and principalities and authority that sort of need to be held accountable and i think that what makes this all come together is that nobody is when when, when the scriptures and the tradition talk about this it's always talked about with the correct attitude nobody is happy about this um, when the prophets, so the prophets, when the prophets have to engage with powerful people, and and bring them to task, when uh, when when Jeremiah is called, when the prophet Jeremiah is called by God to go to the emperor, to go to the king of Babylon, and 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 essentially tell him, stop goofing around, or 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 God's going to end his entire reign. Jeremiah's like. But if I do that, they'll kill me. And 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 God's and God's and God's like God. This is my favorite response. My my God's response to Jeremiah is, yeah. If you don't do that, then the Lord your God will break you. And so Go and do it. And and and. But Jer- so Jeremiah doesn't take glee. You know the prophets don't, don't aren't pleased. You know with with what's about to happen. And I think that uh, internet prophets uh, get a lot of enjoyment out of a kind of a consequence-free pointing things out like that. When I think that the tradition of prophetic you know, work and the tradition of, of judge not lets you be judged is really centered around, um, not, not just sort of humility and compassion, but is centered around the, 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 I think, very true thing that all of it kind of works together. When I critique the United States, I am also critiquing myself because I am a citizen of this country. Sure, And so, sure. and so that doesn't mean we don't critique the United States, but it does mean that taking glee in that is weird because yes, you it, must, yeah.
1: you, you must recognize that the glee factor exists and it's not just internet trolls. I mean, think right. about it. The people that stormed the Capitol were gleeful True. in their righteous indignation of wanting to, you know, hang Mike Pence there was glee there the You're same right. way that there's glee on CNN and MSNBC and watching those people get arrested True. by the I mean, there's 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 this, this schadenfreude, you know, yes. that yes. that exists is pervasive in our culture and it, 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 how we can uh, feel joy in, in the destruction of anyone, even if we disagree with them. That is a fundamental problem. It's a fundamental lack of compassion and understanding. I mean, people do things for reasons. Now, those reasons aren't always good, you know, but if we can't understand the reasoning that people are doing things and at least meet them on that human level and try to walk a mile in their shoes, then we're not going to advance anywhere. We're going to continue to divide and we're going to continue to get farther and farther apart until all it is is screaming matches. And we're pretty much there, (laughs) <laughs> you know, True. but the the fundamental point I'm trying to make is like it. My experiences have taught me not just over the last two weeks since this has happened to me, but like throughout my life to to kind of and you know this to kind of take a step back before before I start you know casting that stone. Like, okay, well, let me find out what's going on here. You know, and part of that's my training. Part of that's my my career i mean i am supposed to treat every inmate equally regardless of their offense and i've sat across from guys that i felt bad for that they got in a bad situation where they you know were trying to raise money for their family and they ended up smuggling large amounts of it's not excusing them for smuggling large amounts of drugs but like i get it i get why you did that i can't say the same whenever i'm sitting across from somebody who like molested or raped a child right you know Mm -hmm. but i still as a professional have to treat them with the same respect and decency and dignity as anyone else so i've already been kind of forged in that um neutrality if you will Mm -hmm. um and to be able to conduct myself with whoever is sitting across the desk with from me in the same manner and i don't think that um i don't think many people were able to do that
0: sure yeah no i hear that i hear that and and you're really describing you know one of my favorite words uh training right? right like like this is this is central to what i preached on when i was a pastor and central to i think kind of my entire view of human life in general is that human life we 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 live in a way that we're trained to live you know and and so it's and and it's very much a learned
1: behavior you know right right necessary for us as a species to survive absolutely each other and Mm. and like you know the the notion that you know (laughs) i called it the walking dead mentality um the notion that that you somehow will be spared whenever the apocalypse comes and and you, you will be able to to survive on your own it's just a fantasy you
0: know and people need to start realizing that (laughs) a a good final word a good final word (laughs) friends thanks for listening this has been another episode of hookah chats with matt and ethan uh, and we will see you next time